0: Before we get into the passage, I wanted to ask you some uh, literary questions. I don't know about you, I, I wasn't really good at English and literary things when I was young. I, my mom tried to encourage reading, but I, I didn't often uh, do that or do as much as I should've. But when, when you're reading a story or when you're writing a story, what makes for a good story? Now, I know there could be several different answers, um, but the one that I wanted to focus on is the characters and the character development, right? Good characters are a part of a good story. And in most stories, there is a good character, the one you're rooting for, or the hero, um, or to speak in literary terms, we talk about a protagonist, right? But there is often also a villain, the bad guy, um, someone who is an antagonist against the the hero of the story. Um, however, many, many stories, most stories that are written, have far more than just a protagonist and antagonist, right? A good guy and a bad guy. There's lots of other kinds of characters. In fact, um, Joanne and I used to chuckle because one of our children in um, early days of creative writing, um, this particular child would repeatedly write stories called the good guys and the bad guys. Like every story written was about the good guys and the bad guys. That was the title of the story. Um, and we chuckled um, because that's a simplistic view, right? And, and to repeatedly do that, it, it was humorous. But you know a good story has more than just a good guy and a bad guy. There's other kinds of characters. And where I was going to get a little technical for you for just a minute is this concept of a character who is a foil. Have you heard that term before? Uh, a literary foil, I'm, I'm gonna quote some definition to kind of explain, but the basic idea is a, is a foil character serves to kind of be an opposite of the main character to highlight character traits, all right? so. I I took this off the the internet, I think it was literary.net or something like that, but basically they explain, um, there is a literary term used to describe a character who serves to highlight the differences with the hero of the story. That term is foil. To quote, uh, and, and quoting them, it says, foil is a literary device to illustrate or reveal information, traits, values, or motivations of one character through the comparison and contrast of another character. A literary foil serves for the purpose of drawing attention to the qualities of another character, frequently the protagonist or the hero of the story. This is an effective means of developing a deeper understanding of a character by emphasizing their strengths and weaknesses. In addition, a literary foil allows writers to create a counterpoint for the protagonist that puts their actions and choices in context. Now, in some stories, the foil character can be the antagonist, the enemy or the villain who's against the hero, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the foil character is another person in the story just to highlight this difference. And I'm going to risk uh, using a contemporary example to maybe uh um, illustrate this a little bit. I, I think probably most people are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, right? Mo- most have seen Lord of the Rings or read Lord of the Rings. Well, in that story, um, there's nine people assigned to take the ring to destroy it. This, this uh, ring of power that has a corrupting influence. And so there's nine people that go together. Frodo is the one assigned to take the ring. But there's, not, there's eight others with him, helping him. And one of them is Boromir, who is from one of the kingdoms. And Boromir, though he's a good guy, actually serves as a foil. Because what happens in the story, I'm ruining it for you if you haven't read it and you're planning to or, or to watch it. But Boromir decides he wants to take the ring because it can help in his kingdom to fight off the bad guys. So he tries to take the ring from Frodo. Well, he doesn't succeed and eventually Boromir dies, but Boromir is a foil. He shows some bad character traits to highlight Aragorn, for example, who is another uh, king in the waiting, another person who's, who's ultimately gonna be the king, and he doesn't try to take the ring. So he stands out as a good example. Boromir also, if you know the story, also has a a brother who also is tempted with taking the ring but decides not to try to take it. So Boromir, in a sense, serves as a foil for those two characters, highlighting their good qualities because demonstrating his bad qualities. So you might be saying, "What's, what's the point of all this? A little long introduction. Well, the point is, I suggest to you that Jonah, in our passage today is a foil character. He's not the bad guy. He's a prophet. He's a servant of the Lord. So he's not on the bad side. But he has bad traits. He has bad attitude. He has bad actions that serve for what purpose? To highlight who the hero of the story is. Who is the hero of the story? It is not Jonah. It is not the Ninevites. The hero of the story, like all Old Testament narratives, by the way, is God. God is the hero that this book is intended to explain to us. Another common example of where people get the hero of the story wrong is David and Goliath. Clearly, Goliath is the antagonist, right? And David is the protagonist. But ultimately, who's the real hero of the story? God is. God is the one who gives Israel the victory. David is his servant. He's just a shepherd boy. But God uses a lowly shepherd boy to deliver Israel from that evil warrior giant. So as we look at the book of Jonah today... We're going to talk a lot about Jonah's bad attitude, Jonah's bad actions, but don't miss the point. The point of all that is to highlight how God is different, and God is the ultimate hero, and God is the one whom we should worship and serve, and the heart that God has, that's the heart we should strive to have By his grace as well. So let's look at the first chapter of Jonah. And we're going to work our way through the whole book. I think we can do this pretty quickly. Um, We're going to look at the whole book and talk about how God prepares his messenger in chapter 1. So let's read chapter 1 of Jonah. 1 to 17 where it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where have you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became exceedingly frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So we see in chapter 1 God's preparation of his messenger. But I wanted to pray before we got into the heart of the message. So let's just take a moment and pray as we continue to look at God's word here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful account of a terrible example in Jonah. But help us, Father, not to miss the point. You are the hero of this story as you are of all the Old Testament narratives. You are the ultimate savior and rescuer from trouble. Help us to give you praise for your great power and deliverance and to trust in you and strive to have a heart like you do, a heart of compassion that loves your enemies, and seeks for their repentance so that they may have forgiveness and eternal life. Help us, Father, to have that kind of heart and learn through this book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see in chapter 1 God's preparation of his messenger. So in verse 1 we see right at the beginning of the story God commands that Jonah take a warning message to Nineveh. It says, uh, in verse 2, that he is to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So, right at the beginning of the story, we see the plan. God's planning to take this message of warning to the Ninevites. So, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, a very large city. We learn at the end of the book, as we saw at the beginning when we read that passage in chapter 4, that there were over 100,000 people in that city. It was a very, very large city. In fact, the word here used to describe it is great. And, and though you can't always see it in the English translation, I would draw your attention to the fact that the word great, the, the Hebrew word for great is used repeatedly in this book and is a significant reference. and. It's used here of Nineveh as a great city. It is exceedingly great, especially for its time. We may think a hundred thousand is not that big of a deal, especially when we uh, talk about cities in, in China. there are cities that have millions of people right in our day and age. But for that day, that was one of the biggest cities on the planet. It was exceedingly great. Um, this word Great is also used of describing the wind in chapter 4. It was a great wind. It was a great storm also in verse 4. And then the tempest in verse 12 it talks about is a great uh, one as well. So we see this emphasis upon this great city, this significant city. And God has a message for them to hear. And the message is that they are under his judgment in danger of his d- judgment so God has a message and we're not told and again one of the difficulties sometimes in talking through these things is we know the rest of the story right so we, we know we read chapter 4 we know what's coming but at this point Jonah doesn't know the rest of the story right he's just told to take this warning message It's a simple message to warn them of coming judgment. There's no clear stated promise of deliverance if they repent at the message. That's not a part of the message directly. But what we do learn later is that the character of God is such that with sending a warning is the implied indication That there may be a possibility of this changing if you repent. And Jonah knows that, but he doesn't like Nineveh because Nineveh was part of Assyria, which were the enemies of Israel at that time. So there was constant conflict between Assyria and Israel, and and Assyria was typically the victor in those battles. And they were cruel and barbaric people. So Jonah didn't like them. Jonah wanted them destroyed. So he doesn't want to take this message of warning because he wants them to experience this judgment. But yet this is all part of God's sovereign plan. God is going to accomplish his purposes in spite of human opposition. Jonah instead of taking this message um, you think of a a prophet normally we read of examples of prophets where God says go and take this message and they go and they take the message right but this story is shocking This, this account is shocking because the prophet doesn't behave that way so God literally says arise and go to Nineveh and the literal wording here is jonah arises and goes the other direction he he's going away from the intended destination he is leaving the plan or at least he thinks he is he he is not willingly at this point going to take that message to nineveh so we read in verses 4 through 13 about this struggle with the weather so we see in verse 4 how god a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea that was about to destroy the ship. And and this is fascinating. We talked about uh, Jonah as a foil highlighting the good characteristics of God, right? But I also think uh, there's a foil relationship between Jonah and these sailors. These are heathen, sailors right and if you were to think of uh people that have character and people who are honorable people were old testament sailors typically the guys you think of as noble honest good good rapport people no so, i mean we even joke i mean i am probably bruce could tell some stories there's uh we we talk about sailors having a certain type of language right they're 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 not known for their good manners right many sailors well, and I think the same would be expected here, but yet, in spite of these being heathen sailors who don't know the God of Israel, which is clear from the account, they're all calling out to different gods, hoping one of them's going to listen. And yet, Jonah gives the answer here's how you solve the problem. I, I know how to get rid of the storm, it's my fault. Throw me into the ocean. What do the men do in response to that? Verse 11. What do they do? They keep rowing. They keep rowing. It tells us, so uh, after they say, What shall we do? He said, I'm sorry, verse 12, he says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then it'll become calm for you. Verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land. They didn't want to do that to Jonah. It might seem like an easy answer. We just get rid of this guy. We're all safe. But they respect his life. They have a certain human dignity for for human life. All people are made in the image of God, right? And, And human life is to be respected and valued. And even these heathen sailors respect Jonah's life in spite of their danger. And yet, in contrast, Jonah is aware of over 100,000 people in danger of their lives, and he wants to go the opposite way. Terrible, right? And we learn that ultimately he was driven by hatred. But Jonah is a terrible example here and tries to run away and yet we see the sovereignty of God at work God's purposes are going to be fulfilled that message is going to be delivered even though Jonah doesn't want to cooperate so finally in verse 14 they struggle against the sea they're trying to row they don't want to throw them overboard they finally come to conclude they have no choice so they are coerced into casting Jonah overboard, and so they do that. But notice their attitude in the process. They, they call out to the Lord and don't let us perish on account of this man's life and don't, don't put innocent blood on us. They're, they're, they don't want to do this, but they recognize they don't have a choice, and they're basically asking for God to forgive them because they're convinced Jonah's going to die. And they don't want that to happen, but they see no choice. So they throw him overboard, and we know he is preserved because we see in uh, verse 17, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. But I find it very, very interesting, the commitment of these men, at the risk of their own lives, to preserve Jonah's life in contrast to his attitude but we see this in human life right many of you will remember there was a story years ago of uh, baby Jessica does that sound familiar there was a baby Jessica I think was like an 18 month old child that had gotten trapped in a well and because of the size of it normal adult sized people couldn't get in there to to get the baby out right so there was All of this significant effort to go on to rescue this 18 month old that had fallen in the well. And it was big news. It was on national news media all about this story. And eventually, if you're not familiar with the story, it all worked out okay, the baby was okay. They, They rescued the baby. But what's my point? My point is, one human life is valuable. And generally speaking, human beings, because we're created in the image of God, because the grace of God that um, God is gracious to all people in, in some general ways, humanity generally recognizes that human life is valuable, even one. And yet Jonah was disregarding thousands of lives in jeopardy. And because of his hatred, did not want to take the message. But God, as the sovereign, was going to make it happen. So a couple things of contrast and comparison. Just to conclude this chapter as then we go on to the second one. What do we see about Jonah? Jonah is selfish. Jonah has a hatred. Jonah doesn't want to obey because his hatred and his commitment to the destruction of those people is greater than his commitment to God and um, to obey him and take this message that may result in their repentance. But what do those things show in contrast with God? I think this story shows us, one, God is active in the world. We, c- we cannot see him. And at times we may see things go on and think, why doesn't God do something about that? The nation, of, uh, the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh was wicked but God points out that he's aware of what's going on there and it's time to do something. God is actively involved in this world. God is a just God. He punishes sin. So there is given this warning but God cares for these people and he wants them to be warned of the coming judgment so that There's a chance to repent. There's a chance to change. God uses people to take the message. In this case, his selected prophet doesn't want to do it. But yet, because God is all powerful, he is able to use the means of all of the universe to accomplish his sovereign purpose and make it happen anyway. And yet, we marvel at this passage. God sends a great storm. These people are in danger. And yet, how many people died in this incident? Zero. God does this amazing thing in disturbing the universe, the the sea and the wind, to cause there to be great fear, to cause them to make this change. Jonah's thrown overboard, but he's preserved too. And those men make it as well. God sovereignly accomplishes his purpose in a carefully controlled way. Our God is awesome. He is worthy of worship. But we see here he's also merciful. Let's look here how he preserves the life of his wayward messenger in chapter 2. In chapter 2 it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, And he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death, the great deep engulfed me weeds were wrapped around my head i descended to the roots of the mountains the earth with its bars was around me forever but you you have brought me up you have brought up my life from the pit O lord my god while i was fainting away i remembered the lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness but i will sacrifice to you With the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So we see here an amazing account, uh, a true account. By the way, I wanted to make that very clear. This is not a fictitious story. This is not a parable. It is a true account of what really happened. And Jesus himself makes reference to Jonah in the New Testament as a type of how Jonah was in the depth he was down in the depths of of the of the earth in the fish for three days and three nights as a picture of how Christ would would die be buried and then raised from from the dead so Jonah here realizes he's been a fool In a a sense, he comes to his senses, and in his desperation, he prays to the Lord. He asks the Lord for deliverance, and he's giving praise here because the Lord does deliver him. It's pretty graphic terms in verses 2 through 6 or 7, where he talks about how he was close to the point of death, and yet God delivered him. And therefore, as a result of that, he is promising God, in verses 8 and 9, thanksgiving, and uh, that he's committed to the Lord. And he ultimately recognizes what I think is the, a big theme of the book. Verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. The Lord is the one who delivers. God delivered his child from near death. Here, Jonah. But God also delivers from coming judgment, as we will see with the Ninevites shortly. God is the deliverer. He is the hero. He is the one we praise. He is the one we seek for help. And then we see verse 10, God has Jonah put back on the land so that he can now carry out the message that God has determined will happen. So we see in chapter three, God's postponement of judgment. So let's look at chapter three and see the postponement of judgment. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it. Proclaim it uh, to Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it to the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm going to pause there for a minute. Jonah is now going to the city of Nineveh. He has a fresh reminder of the command from God to preach this message. And God gives him the message to say. And so Jonah goes in about a day's journey. And it tells us that it's a three-day's journey to get all the way through it. So he's only about one-third of the way into the city. And then Jonah is going to start giving the message. It says he cries out. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now again, notice, it's a proclamation of judgment. Is there any indication or a promise of a relief from that judgment if they repent? It's not specifically stated. But I think this shows, and we'll see later more, the nature of God. He gives warnings ahead of time so as to produce repentance, to bring about a change. And in this case, that's what happens in dramatic fashion. This, this is like a picture-perfect repentance. Look what happens here. This is, this is amazing. Verse, verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. So there, there's a recognition of the Lord God they they believe in him they call a fast they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them when the word reached the king of Nineveh he arose from his throne laid aside his robe from his robe from him covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes and he issued a proclamation and said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles do not let man beast herd or flock taste the thing Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Imagine this. What a revival, right? everyone responds even up to the king and the king makes an order that people are too fast and and call out to god i even chuckle that even the animals are subjected to this ordinance as well this is an extreme example which is the ideal picture of what repentance should be Right now, ultimately we know repentance should involve the ongoing change of life that persists. And ultimately, Nineveh did turn back to their sinful ways. We don't know how long this lasted or how persistent, but at least for a moment in time, there is this repentance, and it's like an ideal example of what repentance should look like. Everyone, top to bottom, they they repent, they call out to God. So what should happen? Well, it tells us, verse 10, God saw their deeds, He turned, uh, that they turned from their wicked way. So there was not just a faking of a, a prayer to God with no genuine... There is a change. There's some change that takes place. They turned from their wicked way, they rel- and therefore God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So as we said, the warning of God, though there wasn't a specific promise that if they repented there would be a change, but that's what happened. There is in the warnings of God this implicit understanding that often if people repent, there is an opportunity for change to happen and that judgment to be removed. And that's what happened here. Because God is gracious. God withholds the judgment that they were due because of their repentance. Great, right? Time to rejoice. I know it loses the effect a little bit because you know the rest of the story. But this is intended to be shocking. If this is your first time reading this story, you're shocked at what comes next. What comes next? we see that God has to rebuke his wayward messenger because of his attitude. What happens verse 1? But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What? Imagine, I I work in the city of Ann Arbor, or or when we work in person. I'm not working in person right now, but um, my job is in Ann Arbor. The city of Ann Arbor is around 100, 120,000 people. Imagine an evangelist going to the city of Ann Arbor, having a citywide crusade, and there's a hundred and twenty thousand people that repent and come to trust in Christ, and the evangelist gets angry. It doesn't make any sense. It's not intended to. Jonah is a foil. He. Reveals the good character of God because of his extremely bad character, his extremely bad attitude. And we know it's because Jonah hates these people because they've been the enemies of Israel and he, instead of seeing them repent and get uh, God's mercy, he wants to see them wiped out. But that's not God's attitude if anyone has the right to want the destruction of people, it's God. We've all sinned against God, and our sin against God is greater than any sin we could commit against each other. We we talked in Sunday school about uh, David as an example of a king who in many ways was good, but sinned. David committed at least two very horrific sins adultery and then murder to cover it up and yet when David confesses his sin in the classic Psalm 51 his confession about the matter what's he say against you and you only have I sinned was David's point that he didn't do anything wrong to Bathsheba or Uriah that wasn't his point his point is my sin against you is so great it doesn't even compare to my sin against anyone else. If anyone deserves to give judgment for sin, it's God. And yet God is compassionate and gracious and desires repentance. God desires to have mercy. And yet Jonah is angry. How foolish. How sinful of Jonah. And look what Jonah says about God. This is... This is The best thing about Jonah right here. These two verses. What does Jonah say about God? This shows he knew. He knew what God was like. He says. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to life than me. Jonah knew God. Jonah knew what God was like. He was exactly right. He knew if God had him go to take this message, there was a chance they would repent and God would Not judge them. And he didn't want that. How sinful of Jonah to be driven by his hatred for these people. And to be contrary to the heart of God. See this was actually a common problem that happened in Israel in that day. And we even see it into the New Testament. That there is this hatred of people. The the New Testament uh, Jews uh, during that time hated the Samaritans. And there was a struggle even for some of the apostles at first to to want God to have mercy. You remember John? What did he he say to Jesus? I I think it was John who said, should we pray that fire comes down on them? (laughs) And Jesus is like, you don't know what spirit you're of. That is not a work of my spirit for you to have that sense of vengeance to want people to be destroyed like that god has commissioned his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth even to people that hate us i am amazed when i read about some of the missionary stories of men who go to countries where there are cannibals i think john payton was an example of one of those men He on purpose goes to a country where they are cannibals. And doesn't he lose a family member? Um, And we certainly know the uh, Nate Saint or the the guys down in uh, the South American country that uh, were killed for taking the gospel, right? And yet God desires for those people to hear the gospel too and for them to repent do we have a heart like god in that we want to take the gospel to all people even those with whom we may have very strong disagreements or hatred for we are as a nation hated by some other groups of people we have seen terrorists and and other countries have a hatred towards america do we have a desire to just see those people wiped out or do we pray for and desire to see those people come to know christ or maybe in a in a smaller closer to home way we we tend to take up very strong emotionally charged political positions and i don't know about you but i do have strong political positions because of my faith and my commitment to god and the truth so i get very angry many times with those that are opposing those things but i have to ask myself and i'm asking you to consider do we more importantly want those people to be removed from office or something bad to happen or just our side to win or do we ultimately want them to come to know christ and to be changed our greatest desire for, should be for them to come to know christ Do we have opportunities to share the gospel with annoying or difficult neighbors or co-workers that frustrate us or just incredibly selfishly motivated? Do we desire their removal or do we pray for them and desire to share the gospel with them? Jonah is the absolutely opposite example of what we should be like. He is the foil here. God is the hero. God is the one who is compassionate and merciful and rejoices in repentance. As we, as we go through the rest of the story, we already read it, so I'm, I'm going quickly because we're towards the end. But we see that God continues to gently work on Jonah. God is so gracious. God could be angry and destroy Jonah because of his sin, right? He could have let him die in the ocean, getting thrown overboard. But God's merciful to Jonah too. God's merciful again, even though Jonah has this terrible attitude. Um, uh, What happens then? We see the the Lord questions him. Verse 4 Do you have a good reason to be angry? Do you have good reason to be angry? Um, So it says, verse 5, Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. This thought occurred to me as I was reading this again. I've read this many times, but this stood out to me this time. When does Jonah get angry? If you you read verse 5 and think about what happened in 3, 9, 10, and then verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, it seems to me Jonah is watching the response happen in Nineveh right after he's proclaiming the message. I think he's still in the city as they begin to repent like this. He's watching it go down. And that's what's infuriating him. He's watching it happen. So then he gets so angry and prays to die that God would take his life because he can't stand it. But then he goes outside of the city. Why? Probably he's hoping maybe they'll turn to their wickedness again and God will still ultimately judge them. So he's sitting there waiting outside the city. And it talks about he built a shelter for himself and he sat under the shade until he could see what happened. Right Then verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. So God is merciful. He gives him some temporary relief from his discomfort um, with this plant that grows up quickly and gives him shade. So at the moment, Jonah's happy. Even though he's not getting his way about this, he's happy that he has some relief from the shade. All right, But then, verse 7 God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. Verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better for me. So here he is again. He's temporarily happy because he has shade, he has relief, and now he's not got that anymore, and he's upset again, so upset he wants to die. In verse 9, God says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And then God points out the problem, one of the problems in Jonah's thinking. Look what he says here. You had compassion, verse 10, on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right hand and left, as well as many animals. God points out the foolishness of Jonah's thinking. He is so emotionally wound up in a plant that gives him temporary relief that he is upset at its destruction. And yet, God points out there's more than 120,000 people in danger of destruction and you don't care about them. Wicked wrong. But God is the hero. God is the one we should be like. God does have compassion. God uses the environment and the circumstances of the world to accomplish his purposes, but his purpose today is for us to be involved in taking the warning of coming judgment there is a coming judgment it's a part of the gospel message i don't know about you but sometimes for me that is a difficult thing to communicate but it is a part of the message the reason why people need to repent is that they are sinners Under the wrath of God. And if they don't repent. They will experience eternal judgment. We must warn people of this coming judgment. We must not get caught up in the petty things of life that don't matter. Or get angry with people such that we can't even give them the gospel. We need to have a heart like God. That is concerned for wicked sinners everywhere. We need to be engaged in the gospel. There are so many different needs. There are places that don't have missionaries. There are places that don't have Bibles. There are people everywhere that need to hear the gospel. Do we have a heart like God? Are we eager to take that message? I know all of us at some level uh, may have a desire, probably have a desire to see people saved, but all of us would have to acknowledge not like we should, right? So maybe it's a matter of degree and we need to confess and ask God to increase our burden for these people, but I think we also need to ask God to reveal in our own life, are there people that we have grown so opposed to that it hinders our desire for them to come to know Christ or would hinder our ability to share the gospel with them? We must not be like Jonah, the bad example, but instead, we should have a heart like God. And that's how we should pray. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this powerful example. Sometimes a really negative example like Jonah highlights very powerfully how different you are God, you are just, you are holy, and you will not leave the guilty unpunished, and yet you delight to grant forgiveness to the repentant. You give life uh, to those who repent, and and, and we don't deserve that. But, Father, we thank you for your grace. Help us, Father. Help us to be committed to what you are committed to, to taking the gospel to the ends of the the world. We can't all go every place, everywhere, but through giving, through prayer, and sometimes going, we can contribute to the cause. Help us, Father, to be actively engaged in the mission that you are carrying out in the world. And Father, help us to recognize maybe people, individuals, or maybe groups of people with which we've become too frustrated or angry, and that's hindering our prayers or our ability to witness to them. Help us to see that and confess it and forsake it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.